Hey guys, it's Aaron Broverman, host of Speech Bubble. I just wanted to thank everyone who's been listening, who's been checking us out on NeverSuitsNetwork.com, who's been following us on Instagram at Speech Bubble Pod, and liking us on Facebook at Speech Bubble Pod, and following us on Twitter at Speech Bubble Pod. We couldn't do it without you, and we couldn't do it without our sponsors. Harry T, Harry Tarantula, a Toronto comic book store right in your own backyard. So go there and Tell them that Aaron sent you. Uh, we just have an update from their owner, Leon Emmett. I don't know if you heard him on our last episode uh, talking about the eventual closure of the downtown location at 354 Young Street. But don't worry, that location is still around, it's shrinking, and it will be online at harryt.com, and you'll still be able to get your comic fix at 6979 Young Street, where they'll still be having their games nights, and you'll still be able to get all your magic cards and everything that you would normally expect from Harry Tarantula. So thank you to Harry T for keeping uh, shows like this going, and thank you to our listeners for uh, all the support. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. It is your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, thank you for coming out on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Speech Bubble Pod. Uh, today is a bit of an anatomy lesson because we have Daniel Brody. He is the creator turned co-creator of Morgan's Organs. Now, Morgan's Organs was sort of the sleeper hit of the local con circuit here in Toronto in 2016 and 2017. And he's doing a Kickstarter right now for issue two. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Basically, if you've seen Pixar's Inside Out, where you had a little girl's emotions uh, personified uh, with human characteristics, this is a person's organs personified with human characteristics. And there's a little bit of family guy, adult style humor thrown in. So this is like an adult version of Inside Out, but instead of feelings, it's organs. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I really liked uh, Morgan's Organs. I thought it was hilarious. And uh, I remember I got a bunch of stickers from you and everything. So I'm really excited for issue two because I feel like I have a personal stake as one of your readers because I want to know what happens next. But you're relatively new uh, to the scene, I guess. So I just want to get into um, how you got into comics in the first place. Yeah, sure. I'm definitely new to it. Uh, I guess I started truly writing for creative, uh, creative side of things in uh, probably 2014. And it really all came out from this idea. Uh, I was on a random backpacking trip in Europe, just finished school a few months ago. And I was in Amsterdam and, you know, in Amsterdam, went in Rome. So uh, this idea came to me and uh, it stuck with me. And so it took a few, few months. I was telling people about it and they all thought it was really funny. Um, so I thought, hey, why don't I try writing this? And when I first started, it was supposed to be a TV show. 
you know, I, I imagine on something like Adult Swim, didn't have any screenwriting background at all. You know, I, I, I do writing professionally and school and creatively, but never really in this sort of way. So, you know, I bought some books, taught myself how to do screenwriting, created the first pilot script, and it was terrible. I got horrible reviews when I posted it to this community forum. People said it was immature. There was no story, no character development. It was all dialogue. Uh, so that hurt quite a bit. Uh, you know, started off thinking this is the best thing I've ever written and got hit by some pretty hard news pretty quickly. But uh, it didn't stop me. I, I realized I just need to be a little more uh, mature about what's going on here and, and truly figure out what the bread and butter of this concept is. Because it could be done so many different ways, but I have to figure out the best way, the way that will resonate the most with audiences and all that. So uh, I got back to the drawing table, wrote a couple versions of the script. About two years later, it's it, you know it was doing much better. People were really resonating with it. People were like, this is awesome. I really want to see this on TV. I had a couple people in Hollywood I was talking to. But it was still just closed doors and no one was really making a move on it. So that's when I said, screw it. I'm, I don't think I should make this a TV show. I think I should try a different route. And I thought that maybe I should try this as a comic book series. Someone once planted the idea in me on the, on the website. Hey, maybe you should uh, try the graphic novel route, kind of like Walking Dead. And I thought, no, like this is going to be a TV show, man. You're crazy. But, you know, now I look back and I'm like, that guy actually had some pretty good advice. So, um, you know, I combined the idea of me doing a comic with, uh, you know, crowdfunding. I'm in marketing, so, uh, you know, I, I know all about crowdfunding and, and the, how good it can be for, for an idea. And, you know, I just taught myself comics from the ground up, did tons of reading, uh, you know, learned about what's different in comics writing versus television writing. The biggest thing was uh, finding an artist. You know, I'm just a writer. I, I can barely even draw a circle without the lines crossing over each other. So... You know, I, I went, I researched online, uh, you know, tried to figure out what my options were. And, um, I found, I found an artist, but, uh, uh it wasn't, it wasn't the right choice. Uh, it was too much of a business relationship versus a partnership. And in that I, I learned, realized that I need a partner on this. So I went back to the drawing table, did some searching online and, and I came across the artist of what is now the book Morgan's Organs. And um, it was the best decision I made. His art style is incredible. It matches the exact tone I was going for. And we developed this great partnership. Yeah, it's a, it's a Disney, it's sort of a Disney animation sort of style, right? Yeah, it was, I, I, it's, the word I, I like to use for it is disarming because even though what's going on is mature, I never wanted the art to come across as mature. So what he does is he, he puts on this fun, cheeky sort of art style that has these weird random things in the background that you never actually see in the real world. Um, but it, it helps to, you know, alleviate the tone and it makes it more fun and it, it makes everything I'm writing tongue in cheek um, and more relatable. What do you mean this things in the background? Like what would he put in? Oh, if you, if you look at book one, um, he's great for drawing in things that I don't even ask him to, or, or, or just these little details. Like for example, on, on the first page, I didn't even notice it until and maybe like one of the final rounds of artwork, but he drew a little, a little cat on, on the very first, uh, the very first panel. And then on, on the other side of the panel, he had a street pole that said missing cat. And then throughout the rest of the book, he just kept on drawing in posters of missing cat. And it had nothing to do with the story, but it was just fun little Easter eggs like that. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, people that pick this up, will have to look for those. What's your artist's name? Uh, his name's Rob Jennings. He lives in, um, I think this is right, New Waterford, but, but it's, it's Cape Breton. Breton. So, uh, you know, he's, he's only a hop away from, uh, from the ocean. Um, so it's pretty incredible, you know, that, that I found a guy who's 
you know, in, in a small town, and especially because he's Canadian, like, I, I love that I'm working with a Canadian on this project. The first person I was working with was, uh, I don't even know where they're from, but they weren't Canadian. So it did, it just has this more intimate feel when, when you get to work with someone from your own country. And we can say this is a proud Canadian created comic book. Nice. That's, that's awesome. You mentioned that this idea came from your backpacking trip to Europe and particularly when you were in Amsterdam. Was there an inciting incident that uh, led to the idea forming in your head? I think you can figure out what the inciting incident would have been, you know, when in Rome. Yeah, of course. But but yeah, I mean, um, you know, I was just walking around, you know, enjoying thinking and stuff. And, you know, I just started to get these these weird thoughts like, what if there's a world where I'm not in control of myself, where there's little things inside of me that are really you know, controlling me and they have voices and all that. And I don't know, I can't tell you exactly what I thought that day. It was probably the weirdest stuff ever, but I did come out of that day with, with a title and it was Morgan's organs. And that has not changed from that first day. And that was the one thing that I knew, like there's something here. I just don't know what, what do you think the difference was between uh, the initial screenplay and uh, its development into a comic? Like what did you add to make it more relatable, more character development, that sort of thing. How did you address that initial criticism? Sure. So I'd say the comic, or I guess the concept went through, I'd say four big, four big developments, four big stages. So the initial stage, um, you know, for anyone who hasn't read the book for a little background, it's, it takes place in both the human world as well as inside this person's body. And it, it gives you the idea that uh, a person's not in full control of their actions. There's little guys inside that control the various organs. Um, they're not the organs themselves. They're kind of more of like the workers of the organs. So the rooms that they operate, the tunnels that they walk through, those are the true anatomical structures of a body. But that's where we are now. So the first one that I ever did, it was almost completely focused on the inside world. There was there was only maybe one one snippet where we ever saw the outside world. And it was just kind of this this dialogue-heavy version where it was just, it was like 2 a.m. on Adult Swim where there's nothing going on. There's just just characters swearing back and forth at each other and saying ridiculous things. And, you know, there was some funny moments to it, but there was there was no real character development. There was no real story. There was tons of conflict, but uh, it was just it was it was just a bunch of people yelling. Basically, it was basically them having a conversation. Yeah. yeah kind of just, like a bad Kevin Smith movie or something. Like yeah. That, that, that sounds that sounds fair to me. Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it was, it was yeah, it was it could have been anyone who's who was having these conversations. There was no. I think the beauty of the concept now is the interplay between the outside and inside world. And there was none of that in the first one. But, you know, me and my arrogance at the time just thought it was absolutely gold and people would eat this up. Well, it was smart of you to get feedback and and, uh, put it out to an audience to see what the initial reaction was. Yeah. um, So... I had a lot of trouble at first actually admitting that I was writing such a concept. I didn't really tell any friends or family, maybe like two or three people knew. So when I did write my first script, I only really had one friend who I confided in. But otherwise, I I needed people that, that I could show this to and preferably anonymously. So I'm lucky that I found this great website called talentville.com. I really recommend any aspiring writers out there, whether comics, screenwriting, whatever, check it out. But it's basically a site where amateur uh, writers, you can post your content, your screenplays, um, and other writers will read your work and they'll review it. And there's this entire finance system to it. 
where if you uh, read a script and review it, you get something called Talentville dollars, and then you can spend those dollars to get someone else to read yours. When I went through the process of reading other people's stuff and, uh, you know, helping them out and then people helping me out, uh, you know, you build a network, which is awesome, but also you, you get true true advice because you know it is anonymous and well not fully anonymous but it behind the veil of a screen so people are more willing to you know give you their true insight so that was great to to really hear that it seems to have taken you a number of years to go from uh screenplay to comic book did you have any background in comics prior to that did you really have your heart set on the the tv show concept what what did you know of the comic book world uh, just like any kid, I grew up with comic books, mostly superheroes. I loved the X-Men. I really, for whatever reason, I really love Fantastic Four. But I had tons of books when I was a kid. And, you know, slowly as I grew, grew up, I, I kind of got away from superhero books. Um, I wasn't really buying them anymore. It just didn't speak to me. But, uh, you know, writing Morgan's Organs and as a comic really has brought back most of the, some of that passion, especially more towards the indie books and, um, you know, the things along the lines of what image comics might make. There's so much great content out there that is more, I'd say, relatable to me, at least, um, than some of the superhero stuff that other companies put out. So, you know, it's, it's incredible, the diverse number of voices out there, especially on platforms like Kickstarter. You know, I've really gotten back into it now, and I'm really trying to discover what sort of books I enjoy the most. And I'm finding that the ones that I enjoy the most are are very story focused and about character and conflict development, but that also take place outside of, I guess, a superhero sort of realm. Nice. That's awesome. So the other thing too about comics is like, you got to learn sort of the format of how to write them. Did you have any idea how to write a comic script before you before you started? Uh, I actually had no idea whatsoever. And when I did see what comic scripts look like, it kind of turned me off because it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a bit more involved in, in the process of page creation. I didn't want to leave it all to the artist to, to guess based on words. I think some of the scripts I see out there, there's too much, uh, there's not enough that's put into the thought process behind paneling. So when I turned my uh, television script into a comic script, you know, I was, I was writing for 30 minute sitcom. So the first thing I needed to do was figure out my page length. You know, I know that most comics are, you know, somewhere between 22 to, you know, now they're looking more around 32 pages in a book. My initial screenplay was about 40 pages and this is television format. And when I brought it to comics, the best I could get it to was uh, 40 pages after all my tweaks and changes and all that. So the first thing I did was, was break this full television script into a page by page version. And from there, I also thought that I want to be involved in, in actual panels, in decisions on, on how panels are, are come about, you know, whether it's full page panels or full spreads, I mean, or, you know, just how busy it is. So I actually, I don't know, I just created my own sort of template on, on Microsoft Word, just drawing squares and filling in those squares with, with the various words and actions and dialogue that I created. And it was very much just a rough version. Like Rob, whenever he reads this stuff, he finds it really helpful for, for starting his thoughts on what should be on a page. But he knows he has full ability to change around how I, how I shuffle things. So I just really like the idea of uh, the writer getting more involved in actual panel development versus just throwing a bunch of words on and saying, fit this all on one page. So you are basically doing the work of the artist in the sense that you're sending him like the visual thumbnails of the no, panel? No, no, he still does. He still does all the thumbnails. Okay. Imagine a comic book page. You got your, your squares. Let's say it's three by two. Right. Instead of 
images in those squares, you have text. Oh, okay. So, uh, for the first book, I actually did draw also my own terrible, terrible versions of each just to give them a little more background to my to my words but um i found that well he explained to me that he 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 found the words to be enough so i'm not doing that for this second book right but yeah i I think it really helps the artist and and takes away some of the guessing game the detail on most comic strips that i've read varies it can either be like one line or a few sentences or you can be like alan moore where you describe like everything from like the feeling that people are supposed to have the camera angle and sometimes like even like objects in the room if they're relevant to the story so so what do you put in uh, into your into your panels? I mean, obviously, dialogue is the biggest thing. I'm, I'm He relies on me for dialogue. I don't know. I think I kind of vary. There's certain panels, if I have a certain feeling towards it, I'll kind of throw in ideas on how I want him to draw it. But overall, I'm pretty vague. I mean, I mean, Rob, the thing is, if an artist understands a vision, they should understand what you're trying to go for. So I don't really need to give that much detail. Um, he's very, uh, he's very technically trained. He knows what's jarring. Like there'll be times where I'll be like, Hey, why don't you draw it this way? And he'll give me a good explanation. I'm like, shit, man, like you're, you're correct. We should do it that way. Um, you know, one of the things he, he really sticks to is, um, and it's very much a, a film sort of, uh, um, device. It's the idea that you always want to stay, you want to stay on the same side of two characters speaking. You don't want to, break the uh break the wall i guess by going to the other side of them and that's something he also does in how he he draws his his panels so you know i i try to be as vague as possible to give him the most creative freedom that's awesome where i can cool cool um you mentioned that like you'd actually shopped this around as a tv show and you'd actually gotten some feedback from like hollywood people what was that experience like um, who had uh, expressed interest in it? Like, what did you get any like rejection letters? Like, what what was that journey like? It was pretty surface level in that I wasn't personally too involved in it. Um, the founder of Talonville, he's actually uh, one of the original co-creators of Final Draft, which, if anyone knows, is the de facto screenwriting software in the world. Right. You know, he he creates this site both to uh, empower artists, or sorry, empower writers, but also to try to find the next script. He, you know, he very much wants to be a producer himself. So he's looking for talent out there. He's looking for writing, writing talent and good stories. So when my future drafts of Morgan's Organ started to do much better on the site, uh, he reached out to me saying, hey, the, you know, people are really responding to this. You're getting good reviews. Uh, let me see if I have anyone in my network who might be interested in this. So, um, I, I think he knew, he knew someone at Amazon. He knew someone at Nickelodeon. He knew, he knew a few people. They all said the same thing. This concept is great. You know, it's, there's definitely something here, but none of them wanted to, you know, take the investment in it. I mean, Nickelodeon makes sense. They wanted me to do a kid's version and that was very much a sticking point for me. I didn't, I didn't set out to create a kid's version. I don't think the concept's as strong as a kid's version. Hollywood is just full of gatekeepers. So especially as a no-name individual, you're going to have a lot of difficulty getting someone to to subscribe to what you're trying to sell them, which is why things like comics and crowdfunding are great for aspiring individuals because it helps you build that portfolio. So next time when I'm ready to talk to certain people, I have the proof to, to show them. And, you know, I have made connections related to Hollywood, people who know people, and I'm hoping to, you know, engage them. Um, but in the meantime, I think comics is a great way to prove the concept uh, without losing the concept. Well, and Hollywood is already using comics as their own storyboard. Like they always say that you can 
you, you can skip the storyboard stage because you can see it uh, right there. So it's a perfect proof of concept. Yeah, I mean, one of the things uh, like I do very much in this book is uh, I try to mirror it as much as possible as if it could be a television show. So I've, I've, I've said before that my book is 40 pages. And for me, that's very much also a conscious decision. Like I don't want to be writing comic book type stories in that, you know, they're, the, the length is like 22 to 26 pages and it ends in a cliffhanger. So you got to buy part two of three and, you know, all that stuff. Everything I'm doing is, is, is standalone stories. You know, I very much can break down my comics into uh, a standard TV structure in that there's a teaser, there's act one, two, three, and then there's there's a tag or, or an ending to, to, to seal it off. Um, but I'm not writing these to be the kind of things that you got to tune in every week to, to, to read. It's, you know, you can hop in at any moment, just like a sitcom and everything will still make sense. You know, there's recurring elements, but, uh, you know, if someone were to read book two before book one, I don't think they would get any different impression on what's going on. And Morgan and his organs are always the same, like the characters. Yeah, yeah they're, they're always the same. same. Uh, you know, he has the same two best friends. Uh, you know, one thing I am trying to do is each book bring in a new organ character or, you know, a new character of some sorts. Maybe it's a guest character, you know, who knows what goes on, who what enters his body. body. But to always have some sort of fresh, fresh idea to bring to the table. Right. And I found it really funny. Comedy is always difficult to write, though. So how and I mean, writing is a very solitary experience. So how do you know what is funny and what uh, what will actually get people to laugh? Man, that's that's tough because I, I don't think of myself as, as a comedian. Like if you put me in front of a room, I don't think I could just generate laughs. I don't think I... I'm always that quick on the spot to, to bring up jokes, but I think, um, I think I'm just, a, I think creatively and, um, I can be patient. So, you know, very much with this, this first book, um, you know, this is a, a story two to three years in development. Um, and it always started from the, the same base idea, which if anyone hasn't read the book, it's, you know, it's this, this idea that do we, do guys think with one head or the other head? And I think you can figure out which other head that would be. <laughs> You know, one thing that stuck through since the very first time I wrote the first script uh, was the opening scene. And for anyone who hasn't read it, it's um, Morgan's in the middle of a sex dream. And you don't fully know what's what he's dreaming about, but you see his brain character wake up and he's startled because, you know, he, he expects his human to be asleep. He was asleep himself. So. He goes to his computers to see what's going on. And he's startled by what Morgan is thinking of. And immediately he puts the, the blame on another character in his body, uh, which, you know, you can find out when you read, but it's this interplay and this conflict. And I think it helps that I don't come at my stories with uh, a this needs to be funny approach. I come at it as more of a this needs to be ridiculous approach. Like anything I write should not be expected. Right. And from there, you know, dialogue is one of the last things you should write. A story should make sense with no words on the page. And that comes through how you craft a story. Dialogue should just be something to supplement and to increase the humor. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned how uh, Nickelodeon at one point wanted you to do a kid's version, but you really wanted this to be an adult comic or a comic for adults. Why was that so important to you? That was how I originally came up with the idea. And I think a big selling point, you know, it sounds juvenile, but the fact that there's a talking penis character in the the series is is kind of a huge selling point. Not just in the fact that it's, you know, it's a dick, but because <laughs> it's different. 
tell me another TV show, another comic book that has a talking penis. And I don't think you can come up with one. Right. And, and it's, it's not, not just about the fact that, you know, it is what it is. It's about the opportunities that it opens up to have such a character, you know, in, in, in certain ways, certain topics relate to sex aren't explored very much, you know, case in point, the first book, I, I, I can't think of a book that explores it so internally about how two thoughts are, are, are making an individual clash between, you know, reason and lust. So I just think it opens up the, 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 the concept for more storylines to have such a character, but also just to have an adult theme to it opens up so much more storylines too. I think when you have a kid's book, it's always the lesson comes before the story. I think when you write for adults, the story comes before the lesson, but the lesson empowers the story. So I think that if you read my first one, you know, I, I very much focus on a story, but by the end of it, you're, you're left with, with a message. And the, the message is that community is important. It's important to listen to others, but you know, you can never fully make decisions on your own. There's always a community that influences you, whether it's pressures or actual things living inside of you. But the importance is to know, you know, to just get that this is part of life. You know, you're never going to be in full control of yourself. You just got to make do with what you got. Um, you know, insert more cliches. Yeah. And like collaboration is. Yeah. Like collaboration is key. To like raise everybody at once and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I kind of even have trouble explaining the core message because it's um, it's a bit, I'd say it's it's multifaceted. It's tough to just it's summarize it in one sentence. But I think if you read it, you're left thinking that there's something there. It's also at its core very honest about our body and like body issues and things like that. And, and you know, really gets into stuff that we're thinking that we might not share with other people very often. Were you personally pretty open about your your body and 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 different things that were going on? Like, what what's your relationship with your with your own body and yourself and like your self concept and that sort of thing? Um, did did that play a role in how honest you wanted the book to be? I think everyone's thinking about the question: Did I write this about myself? And yeah. I can I can definitely say no. Okay. Um, you know, everyone has weird thoughts, everyone has weird urges, and all that. But you know, really, it's just about tapping into uh, you know a version of yourself. So, you know, I, I kind of made this human character to be kind of an awkward sort of individual. You know, everyone has you know that level of awkwardness to him to them. Um, you know, I've been through those those weird stages. You know, trying to figure out. Uh, who I am, what I want in life. Um, so, you know, I, I made it that the, the main guy's kind of a sponge in that, you know, he's not fully, he's not fully aware of what he's thinking or what he's feeling, but he means well. I mean, in terms of inspiration and, you know, how I, how I think about it to myself, I can see there's, there's so many different influences and, and controls that, that really guide my decisions. And, you know, I, I you know, there is an inside out sort of level to the characters because even though they're all organs, I think they all each represent various emotions. You know, the brain represents this idea of logic. The penis represents this idea of lust. The heart is very much about, you know, a, a different sort of lust, a lust for emotion. The stomach is very much about a lust for insatiability, you know, never having enough. And, you know, I think, I think all people tap into all those different uh, things that we can't fully describe and that we probably have trouble talking about with tethered people at times. But I think, uh, you know, I think it's just, it connects to people that there's so many different forces that live within us. Have you um, ever got any feedback about it from the religious community? Because, I mean, the religious community, there's like the Ten Commandments and, and a lot of 
the sermons that they preach is about, like control over your body and, and you know, those things like lust and, and appetites and greed and knowledge and those sorts of things are a lot of show up in the themes that that religion deals with. So I wonder if you've ever had maybe like a an orthodox person or somebody who who's religious give you feedback uh, about the book and and how they how they think about it. No, I mean this is I, I, I separate what I write from from religion. I don't think I don't try to write any sort of religious beliefs into it. Right. I mean I I grew up Jewish, but you know I'm, I'm a liberal person and. Um, I think the people that read the book, you, you got to be liberal to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I've definitely heard some criticisms from, it doesn't have to be religious, but people who think the book comes across as, as bigoted or misogynistic or, yeah, you know, things like you've said. But, you know, that's not what the book is about. It's just presenting uh, one view on life. And um, it's not, I'm not saying it's it's the right view, but it's it's a fun view. And unless you can prove me otherwise, then why not present this view? I actually think that people who are part of, uh, you know, who are believers would, would like identify a little bit with what's in the story, mainly if they're, if they're sort of doing battle with themselves about like, you know, what the Bible says versus what they actually believe in that sort of thing. Because there is this sort of existential battle happening in your book. And I think, uh, you know, they could identify with that sort of reason. Like part of the reason we go to church or synagogue is to sort of try to parse out those things that we can't explain very much and like how how we're supposed to be in control of ourselves. So that's why I asked the question. Mm-hmm. I wondered uh, whether somebody had uh, identified with it in that way. You, you bring up the idea of, you know, the existential sort of crisis. I think the thing that I personally find the most compelling when I think about what I'm writing is is the idea that that it's almost like humans live within a human's body and imagine the sort of existential crisis they're going through and what they're thinking. Because to Morgan, he's, you know, he's confused about what's going on inside of him, but he's also completely unaware. But if you go inside of his body, these characters aren't aren't trying to achieve the sort of emotions or the, the sort of purposes that Morgan has planned for himself, they're trying to do a subset of that. You know, like, for example, Pepe the Penis, he, his, room isn't, uh, his room isn't a place where he has sex. It's a room where he plays on, on an arcade game. You know, to him, it's not about, um, you know, these, these human emotions. It's these otherly emotions that are relatable. You know, just the, the basic idea of lust. And if you're not allowed to have lust, then, you know, it creates inner conflict for him. And you see how, how he, he battles against it. So, you know, I can, I can totally see where, you know, a religious perspective could come in and, and how it, it kind of creates a message around that. But, you know, there's so many different messages that I think each character embodies. The brain character is dealing with this idea that he's not truly a leader and that he doesn't have full control over uh, Morgan. It's kind of, uh, I'd say, it, uh, the God complex. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's a God, but he's, uh, he's really not. He's, he's puny, you know. He doesn't have that much influence. And he realizes that as he sees Morgan continue to not listen to him and continue to go against the brain's intention to make him a better person by telling him you should avoid certain lust, certain emotions. I think my, my favorite character by far who, who embodies these, these conflicts is Andy, the appendix. This is a character who has no purpose whatsoever. He literally walks around all day inside this body 
and nobody wants anything to do with him. And imagine what, what that pushes him into. It can push him into radicalism. For him, he tries to create purpose for himself by becoming this ultra-intelligent individual. But to everyone else, he's just a nuisance. So, yeah, you know, if I get the opportunity to keep on writing, it'll be interesting to see how when someone is pushed to that sort of limit, that sort of extreme, how they might react. You're listening to Speech Bubble. We'll be right back. Harry Tarantula sells games and comics to bright and imaginative people, like you. Thus, we value your mind. Without it, you'd be stupid, and we'd be out of business. So stop drinking diet sodas contaminated with aspartame, and stop microwaving your brain with a cellular phone. And if that's too much to ask, then for God's sake, spare our kids from electrochemical lobotomization. Thanks for playing. Please come again. Harry Tarantula. Look us up if you know how. This freedom of speech moment paid for by the Harry Tarantula. 354 Young. Upstairs. Online at H-A-I-R-Y-T.com. That's HarryT.com. It's very smart to use the body as sort of a metaphor for, like, different motivations in society. Like... What do you think it is about your personality that like led you to to that? Like you talk about how the appendix could be pushed into radicalism and that sort of thing, and a lot of these organs or the people controlling these organs, I guess the creatures. I don't know how to really describe it. I call them organauts. In organauts. The book. Okay, so the organauts who are controlling the organs, a lot of them become metaphors for like human under like the way we understand our own bodies and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. so i wondered where where that idea came from and what it is about your personality that allows you to think about it in such an existential sort of sort of way i think there's there's always two ways to look at a story there's the surface level which is what most people enjoy when they read something and then there's this deeper deeper level i mean when i'm writing these things i'm not writing them to specifically achieve that deeper level i think it complements it but the first thing I need to nail is that surface story. And then from there, it's that further meaning you can gather. So, you know, I could I could have read this and wrote this and, and not had a thought about it. And I think it would have still come out the same way. But that's the excitement of writing these things, that it brings out these deeper thoughts that you can, you can explore, you know, meaning of life, meaning of this and that and all that. So, I mean, like personality wise, I mean... It helps that, um, you know, I've kind of developed this sort of skin, I'd say, to, to you know, showing certain sides of myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I've, I'm a determined person, so I'm not going to give up that easily. If I really want something, I'm going to go for it. And, you know, like if I were to try to relate that to what's going on, you know, in the book, like, who knows, maybe there is a, there is some malicious character in my head who has this grand end game that he, they have in mind for me. And, you know, they're they're silencing everyone else right now to achieve it. I mean, I don't want to freak myself out by thinking too much about it because, you know, it's just a nice a story. But I try to be personal. I try to make my, the story personable to, to everyone. I think everyone can relate in some way to the characters, whether you, whether you relate or not to the actual outs, outside storyline. I mean, that's completely understandable. But as someone who's male, who went through college experience, it just made the most sense for me to write about a male college student and the sort of trials and tribulations they go through. But really, Morgan's Organs could be about anyone. It could be about a 90-year-old senior on their deathbed. It could be about a newborn infant. And hopefully, I'll get to explore all the different 
stages of life that any sort of human goes through. So you have plans to maybe expand the cast, not just internally, but externally too. Like we look at other people's bodies. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, there's, there's another person introduced at the end of book one who also has Morgan's for lack of a better word condition. So, um, you know, one thing I try to do in, in, at the end of each book, which you'll see in the next one, is I try to introduce a little teaser for what's possible. I'm never trying to say that this is what's going to happen next, but I always try to show that who knows where this book will go next. Just to give a little bit of fun to everyone who's, who's listened this far into the podcast, the second book's going to end on Morgan Jr. And you get to see, it's, it's just one page, but it's, it's a lot of fun, that one page. And you see, you see something that he's going through. And you're left thinking, like, oh, like, this is cool. Like, it wasn't really related to story, but that's all right. But you are left thinking about it, like, oh, like, what else can you do as a kid that that he could explore? Well, and because everything is standalone and it's not really the same continuity, I mean, you could you could stop and start and fast forward at any point in Morgan's life. Like, you yeah. don't even have to continue with him in college. You could have him be an adult in the next book or that sort of thing. So is that, does that give you, give you like a level of freedom that you wouldn't have if you approach this as a standard uh, continuity? Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to maintain some continuity because some of the, the, the grand storylines that I have planned are very much, you know, about this, uh, this development, um, you know, that's centered around him and another person. Basically, right now I have about 15 storylines written and they're all standalone sort of stories. None of them really have much in relation to each other. Maybe there's one that follows another. But overall, like, because this is indie, you know, because it's just myself, I haven't really tried to pretend that I have this grand narrative at play just yet. I would rather just lay out all these different opportunities, all these different fun standalone stories. And when, you know, when this is ready to be something big, hopefully, you know, on television, then that's when we can play out that grand narrative. Do you find that now that it's a comic um, versus television, like I would imagine that like the hurdles necessary to bring your vision to life are a lot a lot less like there's there's less friction to tr- you know than to trying to make this a tv show and you can you can go more places and do more things with a little less effort than it would take to actually do it in in, in a real uh, television sort of context so does that give you a level of freedom and are you thankful that you went the comic route first uh looking back on it well, I definitely think that there's a level of freedom, but there's also a level of entrapment. You know, when when you now have a television show, you're given millions of dollars, you're instant, whatever, famous or uh, who knows. But but you have a team now supporting you and and they're they're helping to en- enable the future of that book or that's that that uh, show. But when you have a, a comic book like I could stop tomorrow and, and no one's going to fire me. No one's going to punch me in the face. I mean, maybe someone will if they're really, really, really into the book. But really, I could end at any moment. And it's really just myself that's driving me forward. Um, and it's my my motivation and my will to see it succeed. So, you know, I do have motivation and, and drive for this. Um, but it's also, you know, influenced by, by the reaction that I see in the world, you know. Like, first Kickstarter did really well. And, and since then, the book sold very well. And my second Kickstarter is going great too. But, you know, if, if I'm not seeing that that enjoyment from, from an audience, then, you know, that's when I have to ask myself the hard questions. Like, is this worth it? Is this something that I really want to sacrifice my money, my time, my effort into? For now, it is. I absolutely love it and I want to continue making these. But yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, 
definitely freedom. I can make my own decisions, but, but a level of that comes this, this, uh, idea of like the entire weight of my decisions are on my shoulders. So if I give up, then there's only myself to blame. If my TV show doesn't work out, then I can blame my key grip. Right. There's, there's the good and bad basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So what do you do outside of, uh, Morgan's organs? Like what, what did you go to school for? What's your, what's your professional background? I went to school for communications and arts at, uh, in Waterloo, Ontario. May, uh, mostly I, I work in marketing. Um, I'm an account uh, exec uh, at a Toronto-based company. Cool. So, um, you know, I think my work experience has, you know, has a good influence on, on my comic book. You know, it's um, it teaches me good skills around planning and re- responsibility. And, um, you know, my role is very much print production focused. So it's also enabled me to, you know, think a bit more um, outside the box and, uh, you know, gain, you know, knowledge and experience to really understand how to how to carry out this project. You know, a lot of people who run Kickstarters, they don't realize uh, just what they budgeted for, or just the level of complexity that might go into actually fulfilling the promises that they make. Right. Because like the more rewards, the more time and investment. Yeah, and money it's, it's crazy. Need. And, and um, you know, even shipping, just shipping totally. But um, like people underestimate just how much money they need to raise yeah. and just, uh, you know, the, the things that go into making a project happen. You know, there's certain things that I underestimated, like I'm not going to pretend I'm perfect, but, but uh, I, I went, I went, I went to creating my project from a very business minded perspective, which, you know, has been, you know, which I've learned through work. So, you know, there was, there wasn't really many hiccups. Um, you know, another part of it is, uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to invest money in this project. I wasn't looking to profit off it. You know, if you go into it with that sort of mindset, you're not going to succeed. It's an investment and it's a good investment. It's something I enjoy doing. So, um, you know, I'm just uh, trying to weather through the storm until hopefully, you know, I start to see clear skies and I get to, uh, you know, get picked up by a publisher, which is my, you know, my my current goal for getting to the next level. But overall, you know, TV show is what this is meant to be. You're very driven. You definitely have like like ideas of like where you want to go and like it's very it's very like a matter of fact sort of plan sort of situation so i so i really i really admire that as for how the kickstarter is going now i mean i read issue one what can people expect from issue two and like why why should they support the the kickstarter you think Book two, book two is interesting because I actually wrote it before book one, you know, in a sense. So I'd been working on, on my pilot script and I was having trouble defining the idea. So I thought, uh, one, one of the issues that comes with pilots is that people really feel like they need to, uh, you know, lay the entire groundwork and it, it, it sometimes it hurts the story. So I thought I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a script as if I'm 10 episodes deep as if everything's already set up so I don't have to worry about doing all that right. stuff. Right, you don't have to do all the expository Exactly. Stuff. So I, I wrote, actually wrote this script uh, um, like mid while I was between version 1 and version 20 of my first book um, as sort of just a, a way for me to practice getting myself fully immersed in the concept. So once I did get back into book 1 and I, I grounded, I figured out that concept in full and I finished off that book, I actually revisited that old script and just polished it off to get to be in line with 
what the concept is now. So book two is a, a really, really different from book one. You know, book one has this very sex focus to it. And the second one is very much uh, about some of the other organs that we've only been briefly touched upon, but we haven't fully explored yet. Um, so in this second one, we see Morgan uh, swallow an object that he shouldn't. And uh, the way that he does it is just completely ridiculous. I don't even know if it's realistic, but when you're a university kid, anything is possible. And uh, we see Morgan do something really stupid. And now his body has to suffer for it. So, you know, sometimes Morgan suffers because of his body and sometimes his body suffers because of him. But you just see all this conflict as as they try to pass this object through the body. And um, just like in the first book, it's always Morgan who... Uh, who gets punished by the end of it. Right, right. It's interesting. And, and this whole idea of suffering, it's, it's, it's interesting because in a way you're like personifying the idea of like a soul sort of thing. Like, cause we already do as a society sort of personify like things that we don't understand. Right. And I think like in a lot of ways, like people's understanding of the soul is like, you know, there's a spirit inside me kind of thing. Like I'm not fully my body and I'm not, you know, fully not my body. I'm something completely different, you know? And, uh, it's interesting that like these organauts are sort of how some people might imagine like your soul might, might, might operate. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I think for, for me, I kind of, I, I play a fine line, but to me, suffering in the book is meant to be, it's sort of something you, you cheer for. I mean, I don't want Morgan to be this character that, it's it's tough to to fully put but i don't know i find that there's a level of there's a level of satisfaction that comes from seeing morgan come out on the bottom right you're cheering for the organs exactly morgan i i kind of want morgan to be a vessel so you know if you, if you want to talk about it in the form of a spirit like think of what morgan's going through like he thinks that his life is his his ego is so built up to protect himself and imagine if he finds out that his spirit is just these little bits running around through him i mean it would it would completely break him so you know there's this uh this level of ego that i'm sure he holds that we know is is non-existent if he were to know what is really going inside of him and how little he can really influence his end outcome right you know one day in the future uh you know maybe morgan maybe morgan isn't the main character and maybe there's going to be more to where the organs travel than just his body yeah and it's very interesting to see biological processes that we all go through explained in a more complex way like it makes his body into this sort of Rube Goldberg machine sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny you bring up that that word because uh, me and my artists were, were using that term a lot in coming up with the uh, cover art for a second book. We, we were kind of playing around with the idea for the cover, but it, it went in a different direction. But it's cool you bring up that, that word. But yeah, I mean, like, at the same time, we're both creating this sort of complex process by which the body operates but but the other way we're we're almost simplifying it like like for example the bladder room is as simple as a little dude who floats around on his little rubber ducky all day and whenever uh, he gets the word he just pulls on the little drain <laughs> so you know imagine his life he's he's living the dream but he's sad whenever he pulls that dream because now he's he has nothing to float on right. he's just sitting, sitting on the bottom, bottom of a pool so he feels empty inside right so it's it's interesting how there's that you know that sort of interplay between how the organs um their life revolves around morgan's survival and sometimes morgan's survival is against their best interest wow and they can't do anything about it like you're no, not because you're they're I mean, they could, but then they're going to kill him. 
So, you know, there, again, it comes back to the idea of community. And, you know, it's just whenever I talk about it, people, you know, it's always funny to think about this, this level of suffering. We're like, we're laughing at suffering right now, you know? Yeah. And there's something about suffering that, that heals the soul, you know? You like to see other people get hurt instead of yourself. And that's very much what this book is. It, it very much appeals to that impulsive side of you that likes to see, you know, you feel sympathy for him, but at the same time, you're like, ha, better it happens to you than to me. And, you know, it's because you're rooting for the guys inside of him instead. Yeah, it's the reason we like Warner Brothers cartoons when the anvil falls on the coyote's head and stuff like that. Yeah, we're all kids at heart and, and all kids enjoy someone <laughs> seeing someone get bopped in the head. Right. And this book is just about Morgan getting bopped in the head more times than you can imagine. Right. It's, it's pretty amazing. So in terms of the Kickstarter, we've had a lot of people come on who are doing like Kickstarter projects and have done them. Can you give us like an inside look as to like the planning of Kickstarter? Because I think it's really important that people understand that because it's such a big part of the con the comics community, particularly if it's a independent comic. So tell us about what it takes to put together a Kickstarter that like people don't really think of and like what are you actually doing? Well when you when you're creating a Kickstarter, you're not just you're not just putting together a page. You're, you're creating a story, right? You want... Uh, I like the word aura, okay? Because it really is just, just a web page that, you know, you can type text in and, and, and drop images into. But to to get someone to, to support your project, you need to create something that makes it seem like more than itself. I know those are weird words to use. But a person is either backing because they support the creator or because they support the, the book itself. So you need to either give yourself that sort of aura, or you need to give your book that sort of aura. And I, I really try to build that into my page design in that, you know, you see the reoccurring elements uh, from what I did the first time. Um, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that I really inscribed a lot of value into is uh, this this reward I, that I call the, uh, the collector's book sleeve. Um, I don't really like variant covers i think it's um it's silly to choose one cover versus another and to encourage someone to have multiple versions of the same book with different covers so instead of working with alternatives i created this add-on so it's always the same base book but it's a sleeve that you know you feel like you're holding something that not many people hold it's it's numbered it's signed it has words by myself um so you know that's that's going to be a recurring element as i go forward Every single time featuring a new indie artist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's other things like, you know, the way that I write my rewards. It's not just this is the $5 reward. This is the print book. This is the PDF. My, my reward names have been the same every time. Atom, cell, molecule, tissue, organ, organ system, organism. So it relates to the body that you're that you're exploring yeah, yeah exactly. exactly and if you're returning then then you you already know what to expect at the organ level because it's it's almost the exact same you know there's some minor variations but it's this continuity and, and treating your your project as um you know as something that that has that continuity you know and that has that clarity I think people back Kickstarters because they, they have trust. And again, whether it's trust in you or trust in, in the desired effect that they'll get from buying your product. So you want to create trust in how you produce your campaign page. That's the main emotion that you want. Not the main emotion. That's the main thing you want a person to feel when they see what you're doing. Right. Awesome. So planning is obviously huge to that. But also it's just about page design and, and how you talk to people and how you 
present yourself and how you create your rewards. I mean, there's so many Kickstarters out there that I, that it seems like it's probably a great idea. Um, but it's like one paragraph of writing and, and some images and it's, it's, it's almost thrown together like, like yesterday. It's like they threw it together and put it up and said, I'm sure someone out there would want to buy this. You know, it's about showing, I try to show on my Kickstarter that I put months into putting this together. Right. Absolutely. And there's, there's two other elements of a Kickstarter that I think are really important or have, you know, proven to be very important from the Kickstarter that's, that I backed. One of them is like the logistical element of like getting the rewards to the people. And that always seems the most daunting to me. Uh, because you, you, some people give you an inside look of like the packing and the putting everything together just so that they can instill that trust that, you know, it's coming, it's coming, right? The rewards are coming. So how do you handle the logistical pressure of like shipping and the cost and then getting all the supplies that you need and like putting everything together? Like that seems like the most daunting most boring part of a, of a Kickstarter campaign for the creator. Fair. I mean, to me, I, I found the fulfillment side pretty exciting. And it, it, because of the way that I created my reward levels, you know, I, I felt like I had a personal touch to each package that I was putting together. It wasn't like, uh, you know, this person gets a book and this person gets a poster. It was like, I'm signing this book and I'm signing this piece and I'm checking my packing list and I'm excited to see all the variations in the different packages I'm putting together. And I very much created as a sort of kidding line in that, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, there, there was, it was step-by-step process putting together my packages. Um, but yeah, I mean, totally, there's always things that people, I guess, underestimate when they put together fulfillment. Mm. For me, I underestimated the packaging supplies I would need. You know, I didn't, I didn't think too hard about just how I would get my book out there. You know, luckily I, I found the solution through talking to others and, and researching online. Um, but it wasn't something that crossed my mind initially. Oh yeah, I should probably buy plastic to cover my comic book. Oh yeah, I should probably get something better than just a paper envelope. So you know, it's it can definitely be daunting, but once you've done it one time, it, it's easy going forward. Nice, nice. Did you? I mean, obviously you have to be highly organized uh, to pull that off. Every element of a Kickstarter it has to be like highly organized. How do you get to the point of being that well-oiled machine? Are you already a really disciplined, organized person? Yeah, I mean, it helps me that, you know, I, I really, I am an organized person. And, you know, even at work, I, I keep almost like a daily journal of things that happen because I'm too worried that I'm going to hit my head and forget everything. But yeah, you, you got to be organized. Otherwise, um, you know, the things will hit you that you're not ready for and you'll get overwhelmed. So like even, even in terms of finances, like before I even solidify what my prices are going to be, I have a full spreadsheet that tells me uh, what I'm paying for this, what I expect to pay for this item. Um, what I expect my margin to be, all those things. And, you know, one thing that you should always see is a growing margin at each level. You shouldn't be offering a $40 reward that you're getting an 80% margin on and then a $60 reward that you're getting a 75% margin on because that means that you're you're not actually growing what you're trying to accomplish. You know, it's it's awesome to, to provide things that are valuable but it's also important to think of your core product and making sure that what you're what you're putting the majority of your cost to will support that core product. Right, because if you're spending more money on the rewards than you're actually taking in, that's an that's an issue. Yeah, totally. But not even just spending more. I mean, if you're spending more on something than you, than you're getting paid for, then that's silly. But if you have a reward level that's forty dollars and it's costing you ten dollars to produce, and then you go to a sixty dollar reward. And that reward's costing you fifteen. You're still making money on that small reward, but you've now hurt your margin. 
because your margin's gone up more than your reward is. And uh, for me, I, I personally think a margin should always be growing. Right. You know, I'm not trying to rip this person off. It's just about supporting your core product. At the end of the day, I, I don't make money off what I do. I mean, I feel a sense of satisfaction that what I invest is bringing about such such a great reach. I mean, I spent about $700 on my first book. Um, and that was for like, you know, eight to $10,000 worth of items sold and, and, and costs for printing and, and artwork. So it's amazing that despite all that, that, uh, those costs, you know, I'm still walking out with all that revenue as well. So, you know, it's, um, it's about, uh, you know, understanding how to balance budget and understand that you should be willing to put some skin in the game and don't expect to just make money because you've hit your goal. That shouldn't be your, your, your goal. Your goal should just be hitting your goal. Right. Because then you have a product and then you can build an audience and it should always be future facing. Right. right. The third really key element that, that I find with Kickstarters is communication with the backers. Um, how do you handle communication with the backers? And, and uh, do you have any like do's and don'ts in terms of talking to the people that have backed your product? Yeah, I mean, totally be personable. One thing that I do is I make sure to thank every single backer that supports it, you know, whether it's a friend sending them a message online or or an actual, you know, stranger in the world. I always make sure to send them a post on Kickstarter. Um, you know, there's a level of um, making someone feel special to want to back your campaign. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy to throw in extras that aren't, you know, communicated on the page. If someone, you know, if someone really shows an interest in the book, if someone says, oh yeah, I totally want to share it, um, share it with my friends. I'd be like, that's awesome, man. I really want to give you this extra poster for your, your package. So it's really much about, you know, not treating your backers as customers and very much treating them as, as fans and, you know, as, as people. Well, and investors. Yeah, totally. Investors too. Right. I wouldn't even want to use the term investors though, because, because when you, because that's a very, you know, business oriented sort of term. Yeah. It's, it's supporters. It's, it's friends really friends and fans. Cool. That's awesome. Cool. So by the time this comes out, you'll probably be well into your, uh, stretch goal area of your of your uh, campaign we're hoping so, so so give me a little bit of a preview of like some of the stretch goals that you're that you're thinking of having and and what goes into uh, a stretch goal versus the regular goals sure i mean i don't want to over uh, i'm not someone who wants to overcomplicate my stretch goals some people promise too much and then they they're they're pushed thin. I mean, I, I kind of overpromised on my first Kickstarter stretch goal. I thought it would be very easy to increase my poster size. And, and I learned that it, the, the time and effort and the money related to packaging, it wasn't worth it. So no, that was one of the main lessons I learned from the first one. Um, but, but, uh, one thing I offer for the first one and again, and for the, this one is, uh, stickers. Um, you know, they seem, they seem like nothing, but, uh, they're fun. Um, they're different. Uh, and, and, I'm continuing the sort of stickers I had from the first one. So there's this level of continuity and wanting to collect all of them. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know what my next stretch goal is going to be, to be honest, after this one. Um, but I don't think it's about stretch goals. It's about um, communicating just what that money supports. You know, none of it, again, none of it is, is meant to go into my pocket. It's all meant to be reinvested back into the project, whether that means giving my artist a better rate. I mean, Rob puts in 20 hours per page and you can imagine that, you know, what he's actually making to to put all that work in it's um you know we wouldn't even be able to make this project if it was an hourly rate is he coloring and lettering as well he does absolutely everything wow yeah i mean one thing i've done to help him for this next book is i've i've picked up uh illustration software um and i've taught myself how to letter 
Uh, I mean, it's never going to be as good as his, but basically to help him, I'm doing the lettering, the first round of lettering, um, which also it's good as a writer, I think, to letter because it it lets you see your words on page um, and and be able to tweak it on the spot to to really make that those words make sense to the art. Because it's easy when you're writing a script to uh, to imagine in your mind. But once something's drawn, you know, that's when it might, you might realize that there's a better way of saying something or words don't fit or words should be added. So I think it's good as a writer to to get into that uh, activity um, because it, it makes, you know, it saves some time for him. And it also uh, allows you to enhance uh, to match the art. And then, of course, Rob will always do a final sweep on on the, the lettering to make sure it's it's right. Cool. That's awesome. So are you planning on doing a Kickstarter for every one of your issues? Like what's your long-term plan for Morgan's Organs? Uh, What kind of arc are you looking at? How many issues do you want this to be? And uh, are you going to collect it into like a graphic novel or something like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, I, I'm uh, I'm taking it one book at a time. I hope that each book I, I create, I bring in more fan base so that I can transfer my costs into savings for people. I mean, I'd love to be able to print enough that I don't have to, that I can bring down all the rates that, you know, that Rob can, can make a, a living wage. None of this is about me making money. I don't, I'm not in it for that. My long-term goal is obviously to get this on TV and that's where I, you know, hope to, to benefit. But until then, I just want to keep on making books. Um, ideally, you know, the, the Kickstarters will prove to a potential publisher that this book has an audience. It's a, it's a growing audience and it's one that, um, you know, we should invest in, you know, I want to partner with a publisher. Um, but until then, as long as I keep seeing a growing fan base and continued interest, I'd be happy to keep on releasing Kickstarters. The buzz for the first issue seemed to be pretty amazing and it seemed to grow by word of mouth, particularly in artist alleys around you know, when I saw you around at local conventions and stuff, people were talking about Morgan's Organs. Other artists were talking about Morgan's Organs. Industry people were talking about Morgan's Organs. So did that buzz translate into increased benefit for you? Yeah, I mean, Fan Expo, Toronto Fan Expo was was such a great experience because that was also my first time going to a Comic-Con, but it was also my t- first time actually selling my concept in the real world. I mean, it's it's easy to create a Kickstarter because you're behind a screen and no one, everyone who backs you is, is they've, they're not meeting you. I mean, they're they're trusting what they read online and, and, you know, you don't have to put yourself out there. You know, some some creators are shy, some don't feel confident or, or don't feel comfortable talking to people directly. So it was a great um, learning experience as well as uh, a great challenge, I'd say, to put myself out there and, and put my face in front of, of this book. And it was incredible how many people that when I talked to them, they immediately, you know, s- smiled and laughed and said, oh, my God, this could be a TV show. Um, you know, that's that's what really made me think like, wow, like I need to continue um, making books because um, I'm not finding people who are who are reacting with, "Mm, I guess it's all right. You know, it's cool. People are coming up. And the moment that I start talking about how this is inside out for grownups and how this and that I'm seeing their eyes light up and it's a good feeling, but also it makes you think that imagine this on a national, on an international scale, on a national scale. I mean, this speaks to people. I could either let it die and people would care. I think people would care if, if it's not, if there isn't a future for this. Right. So as long as people are out there who who want to continue to support what I'm doing, I'd be happy to keep on making them. 
That was awesome. Why is the television aspect of it really important to you? Why Why do you really want it to be a TV show? Are you like a, a huge TV fan? Like, why I'm, Why is the cartoon sort of TV thing a thing? I mean, I'm not I'm not obsessed with TV or anything. I just think that that is the end game for such a concept. I mean. Whoever built a rocket ship, they didn't build it to go to the moon. They want to see the entire universe. And for me, I think the TV show is is the end game. I think comics, it translates very well. But I think that TV will translate even better. Nice. That's awesome. So, I mean, now that you're sort of part of the like Toronto comics community, you've, you've gotten to cons, you've seen the feedback, that sort of thing. Um, how has... Uh, like the creator community here, which is pretty robust, uh, responded to your comic. Are you are you getting like support from them? Uh, are they kicking in or helping with the Kickstarter in any way? What has the response been from the comic community here? When you say Toronto comic community, um, you know I don't, I don't feel I still feel like I'm not fully engaged in it. Um, you know, you're one of the first people I've. Uh, that I'm meeting outside of a fan expo, a sort of comic event. Okay. Um, so when you say that there's these, these, this community, that sounds incredible. You and haven't really experienced it. No, I haven't really experienced it. I just went to a show and, and sold a bunch of books and met a bunch of great people. <laughs> but otherwise, I mean, I have people that I talk to on messenger that are fans. Anyone who ever sends me a question on email or on Kickstarter or whatever, I'm always happy to respond. But yeah, it's still, it's still very much a, a solo experience like even my artist is um you know he's not really involved too much in the marketing side of things right because he's in uh the maritimes right yeah, yeah totally, totally. Yeah. but yes. yeah so you know I'm, I'm not flying him out for these events he's uh you know me and him have a great relationship but um you know it's you know community is a tough thing to to immerse yourself in and um you know i'm, I'm trying to build a community around morgan's organs and hopefully that includes other Toronto comic creators so that I can then get involved in, in what they have to offer. Uh, I think it would help you. And I think that like, even though community is tough and, you know, uh, creating things is like a solitary pursuit. I think that, you know, it's there if you want it, there's a huge community and they, they get together a lot and, and, uh, know each other. So I feel like it could only enhance your, your comic in the future. Yeah. I mean, the convention was, was, a, was cool to, um, to meet, um, other uh, artist alley creators and you know there was it was amazing the, the even the row i was in like i was i was next to uh, a schuster award nominee um you know shay han yeah i know shay yeah so you know it's it's cool to now have uh you know have be able to nod at someone and you know they know who you are and and uh you know i i want to uh, i want to meet more people and so i'm going to keep on going to these events and if there's ever things going on, I'd be happy to get involved. Okay. So that more people can meet you, uh, where can people find you? How can they communicate? How can they reach out? How can they uh, donate? How can they, you know, find you on social media? What's your what's your story? Right. Um, I'm always happy to talk to people. So my, my personal email um, related to the comic is, is daniel at morgansorgans.com. You know, email me anything you want, questions, where's the story going, you know, anything. I'm happy to talk to you. If you want to help out the campaign, um, I made it easy. All you have to do is type in ks.morgansorgans.com and it'll redirect you to the page. And uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So I'm sure if you type in Morgan's Organs, we'll pop up. But yeah, please do um, check out the campaign. Reach out to me by email. You know, I'm trying to build something bigger than myself and, and I think my audience... Is part of what I build. I don't talk to myself about what I'm writing, so I need people that want to talk to me if they if we want to 
really talk about these ideas and explore where they could be going. Well, it's it's been great talking to you, Daniel. I, I really like this conversation. I like the places that you go with <laughs> such a concept that on the surface is very comedic and juvenile, but I think there's some deeper stuff going on there. So it, it's been a very illuminating conversation. And uh, I'll see you guys next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. We'll meet again. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 